The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 American speeches of the 20th century. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of American public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. This is part two of A Tale of Two Cities, the Democratic National Convention keynote speech from July 16th, 1984 by Mario Cuomo. We speak. We speak for young people demanding an education and a future. We speak for senior citizens. We speak for senior citizens who are terrorized by the idea that their only security, their social security, is being threatened. We speak for millions of reasoning people fighting to preserve our environment from greed and from stupidity. And we speak for reasonable people who are fighting to preserve our very existence from a macho intransigence that refuses to make intelligent attempts to discuss the possibility of nuclear holocaust with our enemy. They refuse. They refuse because they believe we can pile missiles so high that they will pierce the clouds and the sight of them will frighten our enemies into submission. Now, we're proud of this diversity as Democrats. We're grateful for it. We don't have to manufacture it in the way that Republicans will next month in Dallas by propping up mannequin delegates on the convention floor. But we, while we're proud of this diversity, we pay a price for it. The different people that we represent have different points of view, and sometimes they compete and even debate and even argue. That's what our primaries were all about. But now the primaries are over, and it is time when we pick our candidates and our platform here to lock arms and move into this campaign together. If you need any more inspiration to put some small part of your own difference aside to create this consensus, then all you need to do is reflect on what the Republican policy of divide and cajole has done to this land since 1980. Now, the president has asked the American people to judge him on whether or not he's fulfilled the promises he made four years ago. I believe as Democrats, we ought to accept that challenge. And just for a moment, let us consider what he has said and what he's done. Inflation. Inflation is down since 1980, but not because of the supply-side miracle promised to us by the president. Inflation was reduced the old-fashioned way, with a recession, the worst since 1932. Now, how did we? We could have brought inflation down that way. How did he do it? 55,000 bankruptcies, two years of massive unemployment, 200,000 farmers and ranchers forced off the land, more homeless, more homeless than any time since the Great Depression in 1932, more hungry in this world of enormous affluence, the United States of America, more hungry, more poor, most of them women, and, and he paid one other thing, a nearly $200 billion deficit threatening our future. Now, we must make the American people understand this deficit because they don't. The president's deficit is a direct and dramatic repudiation of his promise in 1980 to balance the budget by 1983. How large is it? The deficit is the largest in the history of the universe. It, president Carter's last budget had a deficit less than one-third of this deficit. It is a deficit that, according to the president's own physical advisor, may grow to as much as $300 billion a year for as far as the eye can see. And, ladies and gentlemen, it is a debt so large that it is almost one half of the money we collect from the personal income tax each year goes just to pay the interest. It is a mortgage on our children's future that could be paid only in pain and that could bring this nation to its knees. Now, don't take my word for it. I'm a Democrat. Ask the Republican investment bankers on Wall Street what they think the chances of this recovery being permanent are. 
You see, if they're not too embarrassed to tell you the truth, they'll say that they're appalled and frightened by the president's deficit. Ask them what they think of our economy, now that it's being driven by the distorted value of the dollar back to its colonial condition. Now that we're exporting agricultural products and importing manufactured ones, ask those Republican investment bankers what they expect the rate of interest to be a year from now. We'll finish reading after this quick break. Now, back to where we left off. And ask them if they dare tell you the truth. You'll learn from them what they predict for the inflation rate a year from now because of the deficit. Now, how important is this question of the deficit? Think about it practically. What chance would the Republican candidate have had in 1980 if he had told the American people that he intended to pay for his so-called economic recovery with bankruptcies, unemployment, more homeless, more hungry, and the largest government debt known to humankind? If he had told the voters in 1980 that truth, would American voters have signed the loan certificate for him on Election Day? Of course not. That was an election won under false pretenses. It was won with smoke and mirrors and illusions, and that's the kind of recovery we have now as well. But what about foreign policy? They said that they would make us and the whole world safer. They say that they have. By creating the largest defense budget in history, one that even they now admit is excessive, by escalating to a frenzy the nuclear arms race, by incendiary rhetoric, by refusing to discuss peace with our enemies, by the loss of 279 young Americans in Lebanon in pursuit of a plan and a policy that no one can find or describe. We give money to Latin American governments that murder nuns, and then we lie about it. We have been less than zealous in support of our only real friend, it seems to me, in the Middle East. The one democracy there, our flesh and blood ally, the state of Israel. Our, our policy, our foreign policy, drifts with no real direction, other than a hysterical commitment to an arms race that leads nowhere, if we're lucky. And if we're not, it could lead us into bankruptcy or war. Of course we must have a strong defense. Of course Democrats are for a strong defense. Of course Democrats believe that there are times that we must stand and fight. And we have. Thousands of us have paid for freedom with our lives. But always, when this country has been at its best, our purposes were clear. Now they're not. Now our allies are as confused as our enemies. Now we have no real commitment to our friends or to our ideals. Not to human rights, not to the Refuseniks, not to Sakharov, not to Bishop Tutu, and the others struggling for freedom in South Africa. We, we have in the last few years spent more than we can afford. We have pounded our chests and made bold speeches. But we lost 279 young Americans in Lebanon, and we live behind sandbags in Washington. How can anyone say that we are safer, stronger, or better? That, that is the Republican record that its disastrous quality is not more fully understood by the American people, I can only attribute to the president's amiability and the failure by some to separate the salesman from the product. And now, now, now it is up to us. Now it's up to you and to me to make the case to America and to remind Americans that if they are not happy with all that the president has done so far, they should consider how much worse it will be if he is left to his radical proclivities for another four years unrestrained, un restrained. Now if, if July, if July brings back Anne Gorsuch Burford, what can we expect of December? Where would, where would another four years take us? Where would four years more take us? How much larger will the deficit be? How much deeper the cuts in programs for the struggling middle class and the poor to limit that deficit? How high will the interest rates be? How much more acid rain killing our forests and fouling our lakes? And ladies and gentlemen, please think of this. The nation must think of this. What kind of Supreme Court will we have? 
And so ends part two. For this Choice Voice podcast, the Techno King is John C. Brandy. The Seagull Example, Shola Salako, Fact Checker, Abraham Lincoln, French Consultant, Virginia Mitchell, Media Expert, Favor, Abbasi Ike, Psychologist, Sigmund Freud, Rabbit Hole Advisor, Dr. Mark Parrott, Sound Designer, Guglielmo Marconi, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy, Videographer, Alfred Hitchcock, Audio Props go to Les Paul, and Inspiration goes to Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, and Bob Proctor. Also, we have a website, and you can subscribe to this podcast. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch, where we consider guests for this pod, as well as consider guesting on other people's pods. And really, finally, the music for A Choice Voice comes from the song Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams on freesound.org.